We're in a series called The Finals, and we've been looking personally on a daily basis at the last week of the life of Christ. And so there's still a few more books out in the lobby called The Last Days of Jesus. And what we've been trying to do is look at every event and everything that Jesus said during the last week of his life and through our personal devotion and preparation for Easter. So the whole idea is is that this is the most important week in the life of the most important person in human history. And it's tremendous value for us to understand it and know it as God teaches us out of that. We've also been looking at the final words of Jesus as he spoke from the cross. You know, and and there's a lot of it that I I just really love to get into, right? Because a a lot of the statements of Jesus from the cross are just spiritually juicy for us, right? You know, I mean, like the statement, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that you could unpack that has tremendous value for us or, or the promise he made like we saw last week to, to the thief, you know, you will be with me in paradise, right? And so, you know, he's talking about forgiveness and then the other end of forgiveness, which is salvation, the deliverance. And we see as he, he comes up, he's going to talk about commending his spirit into the hands of God and, and stating it's, it's finished and, and agonizing over, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And even the statement, I thirst, has great value as Jesus expresses his humanity, experiences his humanity as he's dying for humanity. But today's text is a little different. You know, we're going to look at the statement of Jesus as he hangs on the cross and he, and he, and he looks at his mother Mary And with the Apostle John standing just close by, he says to her, woman, behold your son. Now, he didn't use his hands because they were nailed to her cross, right? But he looks and says, woman, behold your son, right? And he's going to look at John and say, behold your mother. And and you look at it, and, and to a certain level, you know, it's a sweet, tender moment, right? Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he looks down, and he sees his mom, and, he, and, and, and it's like this hallmark moment from the cross. And, and I, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, right? And, and that's a good thing. And that certainly was his heart. But, you know, for you and I, like, all right, what am I supposed to do with that tomorrow? Send my mom a note? And then, I, and then I'm done? You know, where, where's, the, where's the spiritual truth for me, right? Especially when you go over a couple chapters later. This is, this is what we're going to look at is in John chapter 19, But you go over to chapter 21 and John tells us, you know what, there's a lot of other stuff that Jesus did that I'm not going to tell you about. And you're thinking, well, why don't you just leave out these four verses and tell me something just a little bit better, right? Because, you know, because it, and and so you look at it and say, you know, it's a sweet moment kind of idea, but, you know, that's all it is. And, but it's not all that there is. You know, I've been preaching through This is, I think, the fourth time in my 35 years of ministry of doing a series dealing with essentially the same text as we're looking at in this series. Each one of them has been different, but this week week, as I prepared for this message, I saw some things I had not seen before in my journey, and and I I hope they're going to be of value for you, but you you walk this wonderful line between not overreaching, because we really want to honor the text and not make it say something that it doesn't say. Right? Let me give you an example. There was a time in Christian history through interpretation, they really looked like, like to look at the scriptures with, through, at, 
through the eyes of allegory. So everything had a surface level and the meaning, and then it had a spiritual level meaning, right? And so they'd go to the text like this, and they would say, you know what? So yeah, this is Jesus taking care of his mom. Blah, blah, blah. But on a spiritual level, Mary stands for the Jewish church, and John represents the Gentile church, and it shows how the Gentile church is supposed to take care of the Jewish church. That's a little bit of a stretch. I, I don't want to do that. Right? Because I think it's just going to lose all of its power if it's really not built on truth. Right? So, but I do think there's some tremendous value for us to pull out about the way we need to do life and things that we can see Jesus modeling and doing that are a statement about who we're supposed to be as his people. If you don't have a Bible, just grab a Bible if you would. If you didn't bring one with you, there's one underneath your chair. And we're going to be in John chapter 19. And if you're using one of the Bibles that's underneath your chair, um, the text is on page 962. 962. If you're just jumping in with us, right, we are looking at the statements that Jesus made after he was nailed to the cross. So in this, this era between, between the, you know, 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 in the afternoon as he's hanging on the cross... There are seven different statements that are recorded for us, and we've been looking at these. So keep in mind that Jesus is wearing a crown of thorns. His hands are nailed to the cross. There's a spike driven through his feet, and, and, and his back is just laid open like a piece of raw meat from the beating that he's taken. And every single time he breathes, he, he's just struggling to lift himself up to expand his lungs, and he's saying these things to us. So it's Quite a powerful backdrop to what we're looking at. And while all of that is going on, this is what we see in, in John chapter 19. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, who was probably Joseph's brother, which means that Mary, this Mary was Mary's Jesus' mother Mary's sister-in-law, right? So he's, she's there with her, it's his mother and his two aunts, his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. This is my kind of crowd, right? Because you only have to remember one name, Mary, right? Everybody you look at, you just say Mary, right? You, you get it, right? So here they are, the, 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 the four women are gathered, right? All of them have close, intimate connections to Jesus, Right? There's the three women who were a part of his family, and then you've got Mary Magdalene, who, he, who was, had been demon-possessed, Jesus healed, and she became a lifelong follower of Christ before and after his passion and resurrection. And so she's, these are all deeply committed to Jesus, intimately involved, feeling all the emotion. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he'd loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. That word woman there is not meant to be derogatory, right? It, 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 it's not. It's, it's not. He didn't say mom. So he said woman, and he, and he did that in a respectful way. Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, that's John, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his house. Again, a sweet moment a tender moment, a caring moment. But why is it here? 
There's a lot of things that have been left out that Jesus said and did that we don't get to be privy to. Why is it that this is included? What's the value for us? And I, and I want to I highlight three things today. Again, this is my instinct as you, as you look at this text, and, and, and I think what God is trying to communicate to us through this event in the life of Jesus and through his statement. And here is the very first thing that I think you see, that when you look at this experience, what you see is an act of compassion, and it's designed to call us to be a people who are compassionate. Now, think about this for a minute. Mary is having a bad day. Right? She's having a bad day. Now, she was there when Jesus was born, obviously, right? She's his mother. But she had been there when the shepherds came running in from the field saying, Hey, we had, all this, we had this angelic choir show up singing to us. Tell us about this kid. She was there when the wise men showed up, right? She, she was there through all of that. She was there through the flight to Egypt and the move back to Nazareth. She was there when Jesus went to the temple and he was dedicated, and he, she heard Simon and Anna prophesy over him. She was there when, when they took Jesus to the temple at the age of 12, and they left and said, don't you know I have to be in my father's house? She was there when he did his very first miracle, when he started his public ministry. She had seen it all, but on that day, she had seen Jesus turned down by the crowd. They chose Barabbas over him, and they watched him march out of Pilate's fortress, the blood oozing through his garment on his back as he tried to carry this huge beam over his shoulder. She had seen him collapse under the weight of it. And she had seen him arrive at the place that we know as Golgotha, nailed to a cross, hoisted in the air, and ridiculed by everybody else. And as he stood there, there was no hope for him in an earthly basis. And she was having a bad day. But you know what? Jesus was having a worse day. Wasn't he? I mean, think about it. Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's got this crown of thorns that is just, the blood's just dripping down his brow. His back is like a piece of raw meat. He's hanging on the cross. Every time he raises up to grab a breath, it's just excruciating pain. And it could have been the one moment in his life where he said, you know what? I know you got problems, but mine are worse. It's got to be about me. And he doesn't do that. Right? He doesn't do that. He, you, know, you know what, Mary? I know you're having a bad day. I know life's tough. But right now, you know what? My problems are worse than your problems. It's got to be about me. He doesn't do that. And, and I, I, I think there's this incredible picture for us that not only do we have a Savior who's making it always about us, but there's also a sense in which we never get to a place in our own journey where we are justified or we are blessed by making life just about us. No matter how bad it gets, we are always blessed by making it about somebody else. Does that make sense? You know, I think of like Bill Maher lying in the hospital. Even in those moments, he's a witness. As we go to visit, he's a witness, right? And, and it goes, it never gets to a point where it's just about me. 
It always has to be about us. And this is so consistent with the nature and the plan and the activity of God. You know, the book of Isaiah tells us that God was working from a long time ago to create a new heaven and a, and a newer... I'm sorry, back up. We're talking about compassion here. That, um, you know, that, that God revealed himself to, to Moses as a compassionate God, Right? You know, even as he's issuing his warnings to him about if you, if you do these things, this is what's going to happen. But in Exodus chapter 34, as God's revealing himself and passing through Mo, in front of Moses to reveal himself, he says, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth and m- maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, right? And so God is... It, God has, has always been compassionate, and he's poured that into us, and he challenges us to be people. You know, Colossians talk about you and I putting on compassion. We're supposed to incarnate. When the world looks at those of us who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, they should see compassion, right? And then Peter goes on to challenge us to be people who do compassion, not just to have it, but do it, to feel with others and then act in such a way. And there's this huge challenge to us from the cross, from Jesus to say, you never get to a place where you're going to be blessed to say, it's got to be about me. Right? It always has to be about others. Now, I'm not saying we don't have a role. Jesus needed to be ministered to and etc. all that kind of stuff. But, but it's a place where we never get to say, you know what? My problems are worse than your problems. It's got to be about me. And I got to tell you, I think, I think the hole we're in gets deeper and deeper when we make it just about us and, and, and et cetera. And so there's a powerful word for here about to us about compassion, about compassion. Here's the second thing I, this really stands out to me, and that this is not only an act of compassion, but it's also an act of restoration, I want you to think about John for a minute, standing at the cross. Now, John's betrayal of Jesus isn't, isn't held up to the same light, if you will, or exposure as Peter's, right? Peter's saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm never going to forsake you, right? They can all run, but I'm going to be here. And then he denies them three times, right? And Jesus, in, God, in, Mark's, in John's gospel, looks at Peter in three different times. Remember, for each denial, he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? A very specific, intentional act of restoration. And he recommissions Peter by saying, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, take care of my people as an apostle. And he's restored. John's got his own need for restoration. And it's twofold. One, you can read in, 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 in Matthew 26 or any of the Gospels, and you're going to see that when they showed up in the garden, and, and the, the revolution wasn't on, but the arrest was sure. They all deserted Jesus. I love that word that's, that's used by Mark. They deserted Jesus. Among them was John. Now, if you don't remember, John, with his brother James, and with a little extra persuasion from Jesus' aunt, who was their mother, had come to him and said, you know what? When you enter into your kingdom, you need a couple of guys you can depend upon. And guess who those guys are? Us. Well, you know, yes, it's a group of 12, but if you want the cream of the crop, 
to sit on your right and sit on your left. If you want the guys you can really trust, the guys you can really depend upon, the guys who are going to really perform for you, you got to put one of us on your right and one of you on your left. Right? Bold gesture. Right? We, you, you, let's, let me give you some counsel. You know, it's, you know, it's like the idea of, you know, this, I'm the guy you want to hire because I'm going to deliver for you. Then when Jesus is struck, James and John are as quickly out the door as anybody else. And James, John is feeling the weight of his betrayal. Now, the fact that he's standing at the foot of Jesus' cross is a statement to his courage. could also be an indication that he and James had a little bit more of an inside track with some of the Jewish leaders, and he didn't feel as threatened about being arrested as a fellow rebel or revolutionary as the others might have. And he's standing there, but more than anything else, he's there as an act of contrition. He's looking into the eyes of Jesus and said, I know I failed you. And what does Jesus do? The most important human relationship he's ever had. He says, I'm entrusting her to you. You're not only forgiven, you're restored. You're not just forgiven, you're restored. I'm taking my mom I'm going to place it in your hands. We're going to, we'll talk about the rest of the family in my next point, the, you know, the, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, his extended family, that kind of stuff. But he says, her, I'm giving to you. And it's an act of restoration. It's like saying to Peter, feed my sheep. And listen, I, I, I want you to hear the point not only about forgiveness, I want you to hear the point about restoration. It's not just that Jesus forgives, but he also trusts again. He, he, he not only forgives, but he, 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 if you will, he recommissions him. He places him back into service. He affirms his worth, his, his value, the impact that he can have. So he doesn't just forgive him, he restores him. You know, sometimes in our journey, we forgive people, but they still have to re-earn our trust. Jesus grants that trust. He's restored right? He's part of the inner circle again now. He's one of the three guys he's going to take with him to the top of the mountain. Jesus restores. And you and I, in our journey with God, we need to not only embrace Jesus' forgiveness, we also need to allow him to restore us. You, you, you have a role to play. You are a kingdom person, right? Jesus has entrusted the gospel to you, whether you're standing in three feet of mud, you know, in Hawaii, or whether you're tearing down a, a children's center in the Dominican Republic, or whether you're jumping on top of a rock of, in Scotland, God has challenged us and has equipped us and restored us to be a place where we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And we need not to shy away from it. We need to embrace it. One last point. You look at this text and you ask the question, where's Jesus' family? Joseph's not there. I mean, generally, Mary would have been the responsibility of Joseph. So we draw the conclusion that probably Joseph, who who served as Jesus' earthly dad, has died. But what about his brothers and sisters that we read about in Mark and, and, and Matthew and other places? You know, he had a brother James and he had a brother... Joseph, and he had a brother Judah or Judas, and he had a brother Simon, and, and it says 
had sisters, and I, I know the Hebrew language doesn't really have a word for brothers and cousins and that kind of stuff, but, but these were clearly his, his inner circle, right? They had, when they were worried about Jesus, the fact that he was coming off the rails, going head up against it, you know, he, they showed up with Mary to say, we need to take you home. Right, we need to take you home. And the early church clearly understood that these were these were people that that were his brothers and sisters that showed up to take him home, so he wouldn't get in trouble, give him a chance to clear his head and figure out the fact that he's just a carpenter's son from Nazareth, and not some miracle worker who's supposed to make the entire world mad at him. And yet, in that moment when there is an older brother, I mean, there is a, there is a brother next younger from Jesus that would become the natural caregiver of Mary upon Jesus' death and the fact that Joseph is already dead, Jesus instead looks at John and says, you take care of her. And, and I think part of what he's trying to communicate to us, part of what we should see, is that there's a role that spiritual family plays, that biological family alone cannot play. Now, your biological family can also be a part of your spiritual family, right? But, but in this moment, we know that James, Jesus' half-brother, the one closest to him in age, we know that he, after Jesus' resurrection, he's going to become a believer, and he's going to grow, and he's going to become the leader of the Jerusalem church. But in this moment, he is not a follower of Christ. And John can serve Mary better than James can, because John is a follower of Christ. He's seen the truth. He's following the truth. He knows the truth. And there is a role that we as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ play in each other's lives that our biological families cannot. Now, they may be a part of our spiritual family, and so it may be one and the same, but there's a way in which they can, they, you know, they can if, if you have family members who do not know Christ, they should be precious to you, right? And, and you, you should love on them. You should be active in their lives. You should honor your mother and father and all those kinds of great things. I'm not saying that you should leave behind your biological family. And okay, that's, That would be opposite of anything that I would ever teach, anything I think the word ever suggests. But there is a way that we as the people of God can serve one another, can be the family to one another, that non-believing families can't. There's a ways in where they can understand where you're struggling in your faith, ways that they can pray for you, ways that they can serve you, ways that they can teach you, and etc. Those wonderful things. And Jesus is saying, I'm designing you as the family of God be the place where people experience compassion and where people experience restoration. Do you see that? And, 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 and it's a powerful truth for us. I mean, this is a sweet moment from the cross. But this is a sweet moment that Jesus wants repeated over and over and over again in the lives of his people. That people through the family of God would experience compassion and they would experience restoration. And so my questions to you today are, are, are really along the lines of, have you been forgiven? And have you embraced the restoration that you have in Jesus Christ? And if that has not been your experience yet, you can make it so today. That's why Jesus hung on a cross and could look at a thief and say, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
Because salvation is something that comes through the finished work of Christ, not through our, not through our performance of faith. And so I invite you to embrace that forgiveness and that restoration that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The, the second thing that I really challenge us to be is that so how are you contributing to the family of God really being the family of God? Where, where, where you are sharing and being a part of offering compassion to a world that's having a bad day. And we're to be the instruments of that grace and love. Let's pray together. Father, there's a lot for us to glean from the weak link in Jesus' statements from the cross. God, I'm grateful that he was a loving, compassionate Savior. And that as he reflected perfectly your glory, he showed us your loving, compassionate nature. And Father, I acknowledge today, for all of us who are gathered here, I acknowledge our responsibility to incarnate that nature and to be a compassionate, restoring community. But I pray for those who aren't here, who are here this morning, who've never experienced that forgiveness, who've never truly accepted the fact that not only are they forgiven, but they are restored. And they're full-fledged members of the team that is the light of the world and the salt of the earth. If you're one of those folks, today I simply invite you to acknowledge the fact that you need a Savior. To recognize that Jesus is that Savior. And to embrace him through faith. Father, for all of us, let us accept our state as being restored. And out of that, embrace our responsibility to make sure that the church, Hope Chapel, the worldwide church, that as the church, we would represent your compassion to a world that needs it. For we pray these things in the awesome but caring name of Jesus Christ. Amen.